Hi, it's Hal Anderson, and welcome to my podcast. Today, we'll talk to Dave Patrician, the sports doctor, a.k.a. Dynamite Dave Petro, a former wrestler. I'm a little late to this party, but the documentary that I saw on the weekend will bring about a great conversation with Dave, so hang on for that. We'll also talk to Patrick Basham at the Democracy Institute about today's meeting between Trump and Putin in Helsinki, and also... Chris Adams, a poli-sci guy at the U of M, will talk about tomorrow's by-election in St. Boniface. Please rate the podcast and also subscribe to it. And now, the podcast. Patrician, the sports doctor, uh, joins us on the phone. Hello, sir. Uh, we chatted on the weekend, and I told you I watched Beyond the Mat. Now, I know I'm real slow to the party here. <laughs> this thing came out many years ago. But it was such a great documentary. And like I said, I'm not a hardcore wrestling guy or anything. You are. In fact, you're a former wrestler, you know, known as Dynamite Day Petro locally <laughs> and wrestled locally. And you, you uh, uh, co-host or, or do you host or co-host that wrestling show? I am the voice of the ah. Canada's Wrestling Elite. I am the play-by-play announcer. There you go. And um, so I told you what a great uh, uh, documentary it was, and you said, well, there's a couple others you got to see. That one, Beyond the Mat, is on Netflix, by the way. That's where I saw it. And what's mm-hmm. and Jake, uh, Jake the Stink Roberts was a part of this one, and, man, just some real uh, deep personal stuff came up in this one. You're saying there's another one that I've got to see. What's it called? Yeah. Well, the, the, the one that you really need to see is the res- resurrection of Jake the Snake. But let's back up to 1999 when Beyond the Mat came out. Okay. Um, many, many years passed by, and, and, and you talked about Jake the Snake Roberts. And, yeah. and anyone who's a fan of wrestling in the Hulk Hogan era knew Jake the Snake Roberts and, and how intense his interviews were and uh, what a great performer he was in the ring. And then, of course, you watched Beyond the Mat in 1999, and you saw what a wreck he was. But i got to tell you how. He got worse. Really? Absolutely worse, yeah. And then in about 2007, the WWE instituted a, um, uh, basically they said, any performer that needs any drug rehab, um, we're going to pay for it because there's so much um, media um, spotlight on things like that. Right. Anyway, uh, fast forward to 2012 when uh, Jake the Snake was back into wrestling after getting a little bit of help. But anyone has to, you, you could Google it or YouTube Jake the Snake out of it, and you'll see some real embarrassing moments. And send, so then back to the resurrection of, of Jake the Snake back in 2013, Diamond Dallas Page took him, who is now a yoga guru and a, and a, and a, and a self help guy, yeah. took. Jake the Snake under his wing, um, and uh, this movie, the documentary, and I believe I've seen it on Netflix a couple of times because it's it's well worth watching a few times. Mm. The resurrection of Jake the Snake. It's it's see it's it basically goes through the tribu- trials and tribulations of uh, Dallas Page trying to rehabilitate Jake the Snake Roberts. And um, hey, you know we talked about the CWE. We had Jake the Snake Roberts on a Canadian tour with us in January of this year, and. He's in tremendous shape. Wow. So it is, a, it is a complete success story. But, you know, what Beyond the Mat did in 1999 is really put a light on some of these guys that uh, just in, in, in Jake the Snake was probably the worst off. But it also talked about Terry Funk, who had, at the time was 53. So you fast forward a whole bunch of years, was still basically going through the, the wrestling because that's all I really knew. 
And uh, Mick Foley, who wrestled, of course, as Cactus Jack and Mankind and talked about how, you know, basically how he succeeded in the wrestling business is just abusing his body. Yeah. Well, and then they talked in, in Beyond the Mat to Mick Foley. Uh, and uh, it was weird because he had his two little kids at the match watching him get all bloodied and beaten up, and then they showed the footage to Mick Foley, and Mick Foley goes, wow, I'm a terrible dad. Like, why would I let my kids look at that, you know? And it was just, it, it really was kind of heartbreaking to see that. And then Mick, they showed some video in there of Mick basically falling through the top of a cage in a cage match, and that's why I thought we really got to get you on today because something that a lot of people, something happened on the weekend in wrestling that a lot of people are saying, wow, that's like when Mick Foley fell through the cage. So tell us what happened last, was it last night? It was. It was in Pittsburgh. It was uh, the WWE pay-per-view called Extreme Rules. And two guys were in the match. Was uh, One was Braun Strowman, who's the, the, the babyface, the good guy in yeah. this one. And Canada's own uh, Kevin Owens from uh, Montreal, who has been the... Um, chicken heel in this one all of a sudden and uh, yeah they, they, they because uh, Kevin Owens were kept running away all the time from Braun Strowman they decreed that this will be a cage match and uh, and yeah it got to the point where Kevin Owens was trying to escape the cage climbed up to the top so did Braun Strowman and uh, one little throw him off the cage and right through the announced desk now let, let me before you before you go on, Dave. Dave, before you go on, let me play the audio of that. It's just a short clip, mm-hmm. ten seconds, but you can tell. I mean, obviously, it's it's a big deal. Listen. Strowman broke the handcuff. Strowman is oh, going to no. call Owens. Strowman oh, no. with Kip Braun. Don't do it. Oh my God! No! Wow. Now listen, and people out there, I can hear them now. They're going, "It's fake. It's fake." It is to some degree choreographed. But there are some things that happen in this uh, sport, enter- entertainment sport, or whatever you want to call it, that, I mean, these guys are in great shape. And some of the stuff, it, it, you know, some of the stuff with Mick Foley and that beyond the mat, I mean, you can call it fake. And, yes, it's choreographed to kind of talk about a few ideas. But, man, there's some stuff in this that is just incredible. Well, when Mick Foley went through the cage in 1998, they had the spot where um, it went off the cage and through the announce table, very similar to last night. But the spot that really hurt Mick Foley in this match was The Undertaker put a chokeslam through him and chokeslammed him on the top of the cage. This This is maybe 10 minutes later. The cage broke. And Mick hit the mat. Right. And of course, there is a there is a little bit of padding in that, but that was. And then the chair, what was on top of the cage, hit him in the head too. And uh, I've often said in wrestling, the stuff that doesn't look like it's the it, it hurts the most hurts the most. <laughs> chair yeah. hit him. And uh, there. But you know, fast forward to um, yesterday, uh, the Kevin Owens bump, as we like to call it. Um, there were a little bit. There was a few more precautions taken. If you watch the match carefully, the. The uh, announce table um, set, set looked like they had a bit of an air pad underneath it. It kind wow. of exposed itself a little bit. But that being said, that is still a tremendous amount. And I watch this with a different eye sometimes. And a lot of times when they do a spot like this, one of the wrestlers comes out and clears the table from the monitors and basically clears it up and throws the guy through the table. And, 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 and you know, you, you, you do know how to take a bump and, and the table will break. Yeah. Um, but this one... 
that, the, the monitors were still on, and they're, they're much smaller than they used to be. And, and that's what I looked at. I'm like, oh my goodness! Like they they really didn't have much time to prep for this. It was it, it was a it was fantastic, and just the audio that you played, you can see the tell the crowd reaction for yeah. that. And again in Pittsburgh, again uh, fate have it that was where the Mick Foley, the the the, the Cactus Jack Mankind bump with the Undertaker took place uh, 20 years. Um, earlier so yeah. it uh, has it but you know you're absolutely right they, they they yeah they're 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 trained athletes um there's a lot of stuntman elements to professional wrestling and yeah pretty much everything that you see on television with the exception of Mick Foley's chair hitting him on the head after he went through the cage is kind of there because if you if you think about it there's a camera right behind the announce table and you have to ask yourself why was the cameraman standing right there last yeah, night? Right, but but no, it it was a tremendous, tremendous yeah. uh, feat, and uh, yeah, and that's the thing. And you know, you, if you if you go back and you watch Beyond the Mat, and you look at some of the problems that Jake the Snake Roberts has, some of the problems that these guys have is when the spotlight's over, when your time is done in yes. the WWE, and you're used to walking out every single night with uh, fifteen thousand people cheering your name, and you're a hero. Yeah. That comes to an end. And you 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 can't buy a Slurpee in the Seven Eleven. Someone recognize you? Like it's just it's it's over. Right. And that's where these guys get messed up. They're searching for that kind of crowd high that you used to yeah. get, and that's why there's so many drugs involved. And and right, and the drugs too to keep them going because they're wrestling nonstop, right? And I mean, you know, you pain pills to kill the pain, and like he, uh, like uh, Jake the Snake in that uh, documentary Beyond the Mat was saying, you know, a coke to wake you up. And I mean, it's I guess that's why we see so much of it in wrestling. Absolutely, and, it, and it, it's you know it's got a lot better in 2018. There's a, the schedule is not as hectic for these guys. There is a little bit more rest involved. I think most of these guys go on the road either Thursday night to Monday night or, or Friday night to Tuesday night. Yeah. There is a little bit more home time, but yeah, but the, but when you're at, when you're off when you're not in the wrestling ring, you are training. You you are you're in the gym and things like that. And 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 the and the injuries do pile up. Now, I only wrestled a short time in my whole lifespan at 53 years old, but, you know, there's times that, you know, you've seen me sometimes, I limp around a little yep. bit, and I don't take half the bumps right. that these guys do in, in this, and, 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 and anybody that's been involved in wrestling can tell you that we do it because we love the business, and we all became um, wrestlers because we were all fans when we were kids. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, but uh, you sure you know, don't they, do it for the money, do you, Dave? I mean, sure, some of them go on to be big stars in the WWF and and make some good money. But boy, for the most part, wrestlers make crap money. Well, yeah, you have to make hay when the, when the sun's shining because you know when you when you have your top years and a guy like you know Jake the Snake Roberts made a pile of money in the yeah. '80s and '90s. But unfortunately, due to some demons and things like that, there wasn't a lot left. Right. And uh, that's why you see, and if you watch Beyond the Mat, you see guys like Terry Funk, who at the time when this documentary was shot in 1999 was 53 years old. Well, Terry Funk kept wrestling up until the last couple of years and still makes appearances. And, you and uh, you know, every, every year or so... Uh, Hotshot Danny Duggan puts on a wrestling convention and, yeah. and gets a bunch of guys to come to town, yeah. and uh, and and these guys were absolutely huge stars. But mm. now this is their living, traveling yeah. to Winnipeg in February to sign eight by ten autographs because there's not a pension plan. There's not a. Yeah. There's, you're not socking away money in RRSPs. There's nothing like that. Like you're mm. an independent contractor, and when the, when the, when the basically the spotlight turns off, 
You're done. I think we can call it a success and a very fruitful round of negotiations. That is Russian President Vladimir Putin speaking through an interpreter after sitting down for over two hours with Donald Trump in Helsinki, Finland today. And joining us now to talk more about this summit or meeting is Patrick Basham. He is at the Democracy Institute. Good afternoon, Patrick. Hello. Good afternoon, Al. Well, what do you make of this Putin-Trump summit? Well, so far, so good. I think uh, from Trump's perspective, he made sure his people made sure expectations were low. Uh, for them, it wasn't about a set of what the diplomats called deliverables and those, those announcements of tangible things that were going to happen as a consequence of a, of a meeting or a summit. They said it was about establishing a relationship between the two leaders as a down payment on an improved Russian-U.S. relationship going forward. Donald Trump places an enormous amount of uh, capital on the personal relationship, whether he was in business or now in politics. He believes in personal diplomacy. I think he has a lot of history on his side. You know, leaders, if they, they if their countries get on during their respective tenures, it's often because the two leaders get on. And if they don't, things often go off the rails. So what he wants is to have a rapport with Putin. Uh, they appear to get on. I mean, Putin does not come over as the warmest individual in the world. So it's hard to know to what extent whether he actually likes Trump or not. But I think they both recognize that it's in their mutual interests and in the mutual interests of their respective countries that the relationship uh, get back on the rails, at least in some areas, and become, uh, if not productive, then at least constructive. And uh, you know, we have less of the uh, repetitive uh, rhetorical wars and the tit-for-tat and the sanctions and all of that. Yeah, and if they keep meeting, Trump says they want to, and he says they'll probably meet yeah. often. If that happens, um, is that a good thing? Because some critics did not want this to happen at all, right? They feel Russia is yeah. an enemy and they don't deserve this sort of high-level summit or meeting. Yeah, there's two ways of looking at meeting with enemies or adversaries. Uh, one is to say that, um, you know, we do not want to give our enemy, our adversary, our competitor a platform. Putin obviously was delighted to have the opportunity to be on a global stage, you know, standing toe to toe next to, to President Trump. That helps his international image. And critics, some critics just don't want that, whether it's Putin or anybody else who they've deemed to be an enemy of the United States. The other way of looking at it is to say that if the relationship is bad, is there any way to improve it? Uh, can you improve it with threats? Can you improve with economic sanctions, military buildups? Or can you improve it, at least in part, through two leaders and their advisors and aides literally meeting face to face and trying to have a candid discussion? Uh, you know, the, historically, those those two approaches, the we don't touch them and the other let's get closed up close and personal. Uh, those two approaches have been have been uh, played out historically. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, what is an irony, of course, though, is that here in the United States, the political opponents of Donald Trump, the ones saying we should never have this meeting, um, 
they were the ones who during the Cold War uh, said that America shouldn't you know, be saying bad things about, you know, about the Soviet Union, calling it an evil empire, that we should be talking with them and it should all be about diplomacy. So I think you, one has to bear in mind that where, what one is saying about whether this should or shouldn't happen, this summit with Putin, depends in part, at least in America, on which side of the political aisle you're on. And what about for us here in Canada and the rest of the world? Does this meeting and the apparent success of it, does that matter to the rest of us? I think at least in the very short term, it does. Uh, Trump says, isn't it better that we're talking to each other uh, than, than not? And at least superficially, that's true. And I think it should be reassuring to Canadians and Brits and others that these two important leaders, Trump's a far more important leader than Putin is, but that these two important leaders representing important countries um, at least are willing to talk about their differences. And I think there is at least the possibility that those differences can be reduced and that we can become more aware of areas where the two countries can cooperate. Now, cooperating with a country that you think or have been led to believe is an enemy or at least a very serious competitor uh, can be difficult to stomach uh, for moral reasons, ethical reasons, etc. But in the you know, cold light of day, which I think is where Trump is trying to come from, he's saying, look, it's in America's strategic interest to have a decent or at least a better relationship with Russia. And arguably, it's in the interest of Canada and other Western nations to do likewise. But of course, you know, the proof is always in the pudding. This, this is a press conference we're witnessing today in Helsinki that's telling us things are going to get better. But we have to wait and see whether things do become better. Their meeting was scheduled for 90 minutes at the most. They talked for over two hours. Trump did bring up the Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Putin, as expected, I think, said didn't do it. They also talked about nuclear weapons. Are you surprised at all of the different topics that they did touch on? I'm not really, because there are so many areas both of contention between the two countries, but also of agreement. Um, I think arguably most interesting is that Trump, in his press conference, preemptively let the world know that he talked with Putin and addressed the issue of election meddling in the U.S. He did that, obviously, to preempt questions and criticism of him and his administration. But what he said was that this is obviously a very important issue to Putin and that Putin has an interesting idea about that. Now, we'll have to see, is that just going to be Russian spin or is there actually going to be something um, in that area, which would be the most unlikely outcome of this summit if there was some way that progress or transparency was possible in that arguably most contentious area? Yeah, Putin in his comments kind of talked about working together on cybersecurity. So while he denied they meddled, maybe he sees that as an opportunity to work together and, and figure out exactly what happened. But yeah, we'll have to wait and see on that. It's it's going to be interesting. Hey, Patrick, do you buy this claim by some people that Trump is a pawn, that uh, he somehow uh, uh, owes Russia and Putin or Putin and the Russians have something on him, and that's why uh, Trump is so anxious to have a good relationship. Do you buy that? I, I don't. I mean, sure. I mean, I'm old enough. I've been around the block enough times to know that in life, you know, almost anything's possible. But I think you have to go with whether or not there's evidence. There's no evidence that Trump 
has in any way uh, colluded with the Russians or, be, or is a pawn of, of the Kremlin. I mean, will that evidence come out? It's possible. Anything's possible. What we do know for a fact is that the Russians attempted to interfere in the American election. Of course they did. That's what major powers do. America does it all the time. Right. The Russians probably did it more crudely uh, than other countries. And did it help the Democrats more than the Republicans? It, it's hard to say. Did the Russians get the outcome they wanted? I think so. But there's a difference between hoping Hillary Clinton wasn't elected president and actually having a decisive hand in her losing the presidency. Any final thoughts here, Patrick, before I let you go? I just think it's interesting that we're seeing um, President Trump, who, like one of his predecessors, Ronald Reagan, came into office as someone who was viewed as probably something of a diplomatic cowboy and unstable and likely to, you know, start wars rather than make peace. And we've seen him both with the North Korean leader, now with uh, President Putin of Russia, apparently making a genuine concerted effort for better relations and regarding those respective countries to a more peaceful future. He may not get it, but I think in both cases, Trump is demonstrating that he's going to continue to surprise his critics and his opponents. One more quick question. You're at the Democracy Institute. Today's meeting, good for democracy? I think so. I think whenever um, a Western, major Western democracy engages with what I would describe as a sort of a managed democracy in Europe, um, it's, a, it, it's a good thing because they get to see how we operate. And for all our problems, uh, we are still you know, the best example of how people can live together in a civilized way. So I think more such meetings uh, are going to be helpful rather than unhelpful. Patrick, I really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Hal. Anytime. That is Patrick Basham joining us at the Democracy Institute. Uh, Chris Adams joins us now. Chris is a political scientist at the University of Manitoba. Good afternoon, Chris. Hi, Hal. Nice to be on your show again. Yeah, thank you for doing this. So by-election in St. Bonavis tomorrow, and um, I guess Dougal Lamont, the liberal leader uh, running for the grits here, has the most to gain and the most to lose, eh? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you, you know, uh, um, Dugald Lamont, leader, uh, newly branded leader of the Liberal Party of Manitoba. Uh, the party is uh, one seat short of being official party status in the legislature. Uh, they're leading up into an election in two years. And so the Liberals really do need to take St. Boniface, which has in the past, prior to the Gary Dewar years, um, has supported Liberals. So uh, run this down for me. The Tory... Uh, the New Democrat and the Green candidate. I don't imagine the Green candidate has much of a chance here, right? Eh? Uh, no, uh, the the, uh, the Greens really are usually there to put forward a, an agenda or to push, you know, the topic of environmentalism, and they play a real role in that way. But it really is the three the three candidates would be uh, Mamadou Ka for the Progressive Conservatives. He came in second place in the last election against uh, Selinger in St. Boniface, and and uh, Dugald Lamont, who we, we just spoke about, yep. but also Blandine Tona, who's a social activist 
who uh, represents the NDP uh, for for this uh, constituency. So I would say that uh, if it's not a three-way race between the three parties, then it'd be mostly between between the NDP and the Liberals on this one. It's the NDP to lose the seat if they do, and it's the Liberals to really gain the seat. Um, in some ways, I think the progressive conservatives would like to see the Liberals win this by-election simply so that the center-left vote in the coming um, uh, provincial election in two years will have a, um, a rejuvenated Liberal Party up against the NDP for the center-left. Yeah, the Tories here, I, I think they'd love to win it, but if they don't, it's not a huge deal. It's not really expected. That's right, and and uh, sometimes a by-election is perceived as a uh, as a way by which voters are judging the the sitting government. Um, but really, uh, just like Point Douglas uh, before as a by-election and now St. Boniface, I don't think people realistically see the Progressive Conservatives winning this this election. Though they could surprise people, but um, it's not really seen as as a judgment on on the sitting premier. And low voter turnout expected its by-election. That would help who? Probably the NDP candidate here? Uh, probably. Well, it's hard, it's hard to say, Hal. Um, but but we, we do anticipate low voter turnout for two reasons. One is that summer elections tend to have low turnouts. Just people are more concentrated on being at the lake or taking care of their kids on summer holidays, so on and so forth, or they're traveling. The second thing is by-elections are notorious for having low turnouts, and it's simply because um, you aren't choosing the government. Um, you're really just choosing a local candidate and maybe the party. So it's, it doesn't have the um, – and it doesn't have all the media attention you, you have during a provincial or a federal election. With that being said, um, we can see the uh, – really the Liberals and the NDP putting a lot of resources of getting the vote out. So there will be lots of people driving voters to the voter stations, uh, phoning people to remind them it's election day, etc. So I, I see a lot of activity going on for the Go TV, as we call it in political science, the get out the vote, uh, which will be happening. So when we wake up on Wednesday morning and we've got a winner, whoever that winner is, what sort of messages are you looking for? What will that tell us about provincial politics, do you think? Well, I would say that that uh, um, the big message, if the Liberals, and it's, it's not a slam dunk, but if the Liberals take this constituency away from the NDP, the, the story will be that we've got now a, a Liberal Party that's got more capacity, um, more able to have resources to run an office in the legislature and to um, have a have more uh, say on, on the legislative floor during debates, etc. So it would be um, that there are three parties parties with a voice in the legislature instead of two and a half parties. And at the same time, if the NDP win this constituency race, then it'll say that the, the NDP are really in, in a position to be the strongest opposition going into the next uh, provincial election. Chris, thank you for your time. Thanks, Hal. Enjoy the weather. You too, Chris. Thank you. Chris Adams, poli-sci guy at the U of M.